This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Right. <laughs> thanks, Joseph, and thanks for the invitation to, to come here. As I was saying just now, I've had many invitations to come to Athen, but when I was in Canada and then when I was in Italy, I was never actually able to make it because it was all at the wrong time. So it's only the second time uh, I've been here, although I've been to the RT uh, many times. So I'm, I'm very glad to be here. I didn't choose the title of my talk you've just given, and I'm not sure I could get away with a title like that in Scotland, but we're, 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 we're here, we're in England, so I think I know basically where you're coming from and what the interest is. But I put up here, this is a piece of uh, publicity, the cover of my book, which came out about 18 months ago about the independence of Scotland, Self-Government and the Shifting Politics uh, of Union which is also has a play on words in the title there uh, about union. The display there is the Declaration of Ambrose of 1320, which was a wonderfully precocious statement by the Scottish aristocrats on behalf of King Robert the Bruce when they sent a letter to the Pope asking that the Pope recognise Robert the Bruce as King of Scotland and repudiate the claims of King Edward of England over Scotland. And it contains within it some extraordinarily modern ideas uh, about sovereignty and conditional kingship and so on. Uh, and I was used to having very dowdy titles to books that I publish, very boring titles. I know the content is boring anyway, but having a boring cover was just too bad. So we were driving down the coast and I said to my wife, what cover am I going to put on the book? She said, the Declaration of Our Brooks. So that explains uh, what, what that is about. Now, what I'm going to talk about today is uh, to do with Scotland and to do with the union of Scotland and England, but I want to put it in a broader context, and that is a concern that I've had for a number of years that we've thought about the relationship of the nation to the state and the problem of national accommodation in the wrong terms, using the wrong kind of categories, concepts uh, and ideas. And we're always posing the problem, which is the fundamental question in nationalism studies, how can you fit the nation to the state when there aren't enough states to go around given the number of nations or they don't have the same territorial or cultural uh, configuration. Uh, and I've argued that if you look historically uh, at these things, then the nation itself is a very malleable thing. Nations are not fixed, they change. Sometimes you have the same title, the same label, uh, for more or less the same territory over long periods of time. But the content, the political and social content, the meaning of the nation changes. And we have to take that into account when we're thinking about the accommodation of the nation. And the same thing is true of the state. When we talk about nations becoming states, this is to a moving target. Because the state in the 21st century is not the state as it was in the 20th century or the 19th century, and certainly not in previous historical periods. Uh, and uh, I've also argued, notably in my work on, on plurinational democracy, that this provides new ways of accommodating nations if we take a more constructivist concept of the nation and recognize the state itself uh, is something that can have uh, different forms 
the sovereignty is not absolute, sovereignty is something that is relative. Now there are all kinds of political forms that nations uh, can stake, of which the state is, is only just one. Now when I started studying this way back in the early 1970s, that was actually quite a contentious claim. And everybody said, no, no, it's not true. Of course, nations want to be states, they have to be states. Uh, indeed, in the first edition of Anthony Smith's book, which was about 40 years ago, he said nations aspire to become states. He's now withdrawn that claim, as most people have, because this has almost become part of the mainstream. There are many political forms that nations can take. Now, the United Kingdom uh, and Scotland are, are particularly interesting uh, examples of this. Uh, uh, because what is happening in the United Kingdom at the moment is quite a radical reconfiguration of the state, a recognition of its plurinational nature, uh, a very asymmetrical constitution that doesn't correspond to any of the classic constitutional uh, designs, uh, but that represents many of the aspects of diversity, accommodation, plurinationalism and so on uh, that I've been talking about. Uh, and I never thought I'd live to say that, because for many years the study of British politics was extremely boring. Uh, and what could be said about the British Constitution could be said in one sentence. We don't have a constitution. That's it. Uh, and there were visions of history which were all about accommodation and uh, gradual progression and liberalism and so on, which really failed to address uh, a question that was of great importance in the United Kingdom outside of England, namely the relationship of the various parts of the state to the whole. Periodically this explodes. It exploded in the late 19th century. It, there was eruptions of, uh, in, the, in the 1920s, again in the 1940s. And since the 1970s, this has been more, I say, a continual question on the political agenda. What do we do about the multinational nature of the state. Now clearly that is more important if you live in Scotland than if you live in London. But even the London elite sometimes uh, gets to grips with uh, the fact that this is not a unitary state, it's a very complex multinational union. Now what I argued in, in my book is that the nature of this union has not been well understood uh, uh, and it's less understood now even than it was uh, a few years ago but that effectively we're seeing the demise of the traditional ideology and practice that underpinned Britain as a multinational state, or more generally the United Kingdom, which then includes Northern Ireland. We're seeing a, a, a loss of statecraft, a loss of understanding of the Union, and a more or less complete disappearance of the ideological project of Union, and a crisis in the political management of Union. Now that seems to be a very bold claim uh, to make since the Union is still with us. But I'll just give little bits of evidence to, to support my claim. But what is more interesting is why that is coming about and what the consequences of it are. Because I'm going to argue that in the case of the relationship between uh, England and Scotland or the United Kingdom uh, and Scotland, the traditional Unionist mode of managing this relationship has entered into a terminal crisis, but it has not been replaced by a hegemonic counter-project of Scottish nationalism. So the Unionists and the Nationalists in Scotland have argued themselves to a standstill, 
uh, and recent events, as, as recently as yesterday, in fact, the debate in the Scottish Parliament, really uh, illustrated my point. Uh, uh, I, I don't like giving PowerPoint presentations. I hardly know how to operate this thing. I'm not going to give you a PowerPoint presentation, but I'm going to give you some data here, or some ideas. First of all, this is the start of my book, when I, I talk about the way that people celebrated the Anglo-Scottish Union, which occurred in 1707. Uh, so a hundred years after the Union, people were celebrating the Union. This was Scottish Unionism at its height. Uh, the centenary of the Anglo-Scottish Union Treaty of Union, correctly, was celebrated in the midst of war, the Napoleonic Wars, with a grand ball in Edinburgh, the hall festooned with elegant transparencies depicting St. George, St. Andrew and St. Patrick, a band of pipers playing Will Britannia, Hearts of Oak, Britain's strike home and God save the king. This is imperial triumphalist unionist. This is in Edinburgh. That's what people thought, the elites thought about the union uh, at the time. And then we go to 1907. The Lord Provost of Edinburgh declared 200 years which have elapsed since the union have witnessed changes almost fabulous in the social, economic and political condition of Scotland. Not even the bitterest opponent of union would desire a return to the old conditions. So we still have this unionist narrative but the language is very different. This is very instrumental, social, economic, and political condition. This is a bourgeois calculating unionism, replacing uh, the triumphalism. So there are different unionisms uh, within Scotland. And then, of course, in 2007, there was the third centenary of the union. So I went around the newspapers to try and find the similar declarations about the union, uh, what it meant why it was important, how it should be celebrated, and this is what I found. Well, I looked, there's <laughs> absolutely nothing, nothing there. Because by 2007, nobody could make a clearly articulated case for the Union. So the third centenary passed by unnoticed, which is extraordinary, considering how salient the political uh, issue is. So there's a kind of ideological crisis in, in, in Unionism and, and discussing uh, the value of the Union. I'll give you another opinion poll here. Do you believe that Scotland is likely to become independent in the future, within five years, ten years, twenty years, and so on? Within five years, hardly anybody believes it. Within ten years, twenty percent. Within twenty years, yes, seventeen percent, uh, and so on. No, never, only thirty-four percent. And you add the don't knows together. Half of the population really thinks Scotland is going to become independent. Uh, this is quite uh, remarkable. If you look at other stateless nations, you don't get these kinds of figures. Uh, and if you tell people uh, in, in England, you don't half the Scots think they're going to become independent, they just, they just wouldn't believe you. If you look at opinion in England uh, uh, about this, in fact, it's, it's almost exactly the same. Well, if you look at opinion about what people want for Scotland. This is the latest poll. It was just a couple of months ago. Uh, independence, 22%. It has been that for the last 40 years. It went up to the 30% when Mrs. Thatcher was in power, for obvious reasons, and then came down again. It's running about there. Scotland should remain as it is with a devolved parliament. Scotland should remain part of the UK with increased powers. 44%. In other words, there's still a strong demand in Scotland for constitutional change, but not uh, for uh, independence. The remarkable thing, uh, again, 
is that if you look at opinion in England, I'm not going to show you the figures for England, but you just have to believe me, that they're almost identical. Now, that about between 22 and 30% of people in England think Scotland should become independent. Uh, and the same number think that it should be, well, if you put these categories together, because people in England don't make that distinction, it's about the same. So it's, there's an extraordinary lack of concern in the United Kingdom compared, say, with Spain or Canada or other places uh, about whether the country really falls uh, apart. And if you ask political elites in the United Kingdom, they see also seem remarkably unconcerned. There was a survey by the website Conservative Home just before the last election which showed that 49% of Conservative candidates most of whom now are MPs, didn't care whether the United Kingdom fell apart or not. Again, just ask people in Spain or Canada or Belgium that question, you'll get a very, very different answer. So something is happening uh, to union here. Something is happening to the constitution uh, of the United Kingdom. It's political support base. I've got a few more figures here we could look at. Uh, that's just about support for uh, independence. I'll come back to that perhaps in a moment because it shows the ambivalence uh, of attitudes within Scotland, which is common between Scotland uh, and other places. Uh, another indicator of the ideological crisis of the Union, uh, you may recall this, it's more or less gone away since the election, but for three or four years before the last election there was this agonised debate in the country about Britishness. Amber Gordon's brand Britishness debates. What is Britishness? How do we define Britishness? Uh, it's all about fair play. It's about the British. It's about democracy. Um, John Major had an earlier one about old maids cycling to church and cricket on the green and so on. Even Cambridge Court was Englishness rather than Britishness. But he didn't know that. Gordon Brown, who's from Scotland, has to have something called uh, Britishness. Uh, and there was the Goldsmith report uh, on uh, Britishness and national identity. There was a House of Lords report on uh, Britishness, trying to get the essence of Britishness. Now, if people are agonizing about what Britishness is, it means that it's no longer there. Because when it's there, you don't talk about it. You only talk about it if you feel that you've lost it. Now, the UK is not the only country that's had this debate. Sarkozy had this debate about national identity just a year or two ago. Uh, other countries are having it, but in Britain it takes a peculiar form because it is addressing two dimensions of what is perceived as a threat to Britishness. One is multiculturalism, which is about the results of, of recent immigration, and the other is about the multinational nature of the state, that it consists of England, Wales, Scotland, and part of Ireland. Uh, and in Britain these two debates were kind of merged together in a, in a very, very strange way uh, because multinationalism is not the same as, as multiculturalism uh, at all uh, and the fact that the uh, elites couldn't understand that anymore really showed uh, how they'd lost the, the plot of, of Britishness. Now, what, do the, what, what, what does unionism traditionally consist of? What is it? Uh, that's been lost here. My argument is that Britishness and unionism, well, unionism, let's, let's, let's call it unionism, 
which is underpinned by a sense of Britishness. Unionism is, is an ideology. In a way, it's a national ideology. It's a nationalism, which is a distinct way of dealing with a, a multinational state, which can be contrasted with the French model of integration, assimilation, the Jacobin unitary state, uh, la république une et indivisible, uh, in which everybody has to become French in the same homogeneous way. The British never tried to do that. Uh, they've always recognized that there are distinct nations within the United Kingdom. Now, they've had a problem uh, dealing with this institutionally. They've been very bad at handling it institutionally. But what they've been quite good at is recognizing uh, national uh, diversity. And nevertheless, this national diversity flows into a single conception of the state. So Britain has always been a very uh, <coughs> peculiar state, recognizing national diversity, but combining this with centralization of power. More specifically, there's a conservative nationalism and there's a, a labor conservative unionism and, and labor unionism. Conservative unionism is imbued with notions of tradition, uh, limited governments, uh, recognizing that many things are dealt with in civil society rather than the state, uh, uh, but focusing sovereignty in Westminster. So as long as sovereignty belongs to Westminster, then you can do all sorts of things underneath it. You can join the European Union and pretend that Westminster sovereignty is unchanged which is nonsense, of course, but you can pretend that. You can, you can still claim that Westminster is sovereign. And you can give all kinds of administrative and symbolic recognition to the peripheral nations as long as ultimate power remains uh, at Westminster. <coughs> Within this, you can have all sorts of different ways of being British. So you can be British in, in, in Northern Ireland, you go to an orange parade in Ballymena where they're waving their Union flags, that's one way of being British. Go to a garden party in Surrey and that's a very, very different way of being British. So Britishness is one of these concepts that takes different forms in different places. It's more of a, <coughs> uh, uh, one of Wittgenstein's family resemblance concepts. There are multiple ways of, of being British. And, what Gordon Brown and his acolytes forgot was precisely that, because they tried to essentialize Britishness. And so there is a core of Britishness. You've all got to share this one thing, and then you can have all the variations around it, but there's a core meaning of Britishness. In fact, there's never been a core meaning of Britishness. It's a concept that takes different forms uh, in different places. And then there's a, uh, a left-wing or labor unionism, which is all about social equality, uh, commanding heights of the economy, pulling levers, it's about centralization, the need for a strong state and a strong unitary state to engage in progressive economic uh, and social policy. And these pillars, these have been the two pillars uh, of the unionism, really in the, in the 20th century. Indeed, we've seen echoes of that, the quotations I gave, the uh, romantic, triumphalist, imperialist unionism, the more bourgeois, calculating unionism, and then you get the working class, laborist unionism, which is about equal standards, non-discrimination, redistribution, which requires a strong uh, and centralized state. All of these meanings of union seem to be being uh, undermined currently. 
uh, all of them have difficulty articulating uh, a case for the Union. Uh, and this really, in fact, it was very fortunate for my purpose that Gordon Brown became Prime Minister when he did, because uh, I then had this articulation of the crisis of all these meanings of, of, of unionism. <coughs> my other story about Gordon Brown was that uh, he and I applied for a, the same job once in academia back in 1975. Uh, Gordon got the job and I didn't. So I was annoyed for a little while. But then all the years where Gordon was travailing in opposition when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer and I was at the Euro European University Institute, I used to dine out on the story. You know, Gordon got that job, but I've got the job I really want. Gordon, he's still waiting. And then after 2007, I said, well, we've both got the jobs we really want, but uh, I'm enjoying myself. <laughs> but there was my old friend Gordon after all these years, and we talked about that at the time, because this was the high time of the rise of Scottish nationalism and devolution, grappling this, and somehow just seemed to have lost the plot, seemed to have unlearned everything he used to know back in the 1970s, and desperately trying to put together this, this, this notion of Britishness uh, with these various meanings uh, of the Union. Well, anyway, that's, that's, that's my, my, my evidence for the ideological crisis of unionism, for problems in the practice of union. Uh, but I'm not saying the union has disappeared, because clearly it, it is still there. What I'm saying is that it's in very serious trouble. Now, lots of people have said this. There's a whole genre of literature in recent years about the crisis uh, of Britishness, the end of Britishness, the end of union, the end of this, that, uh, and the other thing. A lot of popular literature, as well as scientific literature uh, about the crisis of Englishness too, what, what, how does Englishness play into uh, all of this, which again is further evidence of the existence of some kind of ideological crisis. Uh, and there are various reasons given for this, why people don't really belong, believe uh, in the Union uh, anymore. Uh, one hinges on Linda Colley's book, which was published uh, quite a few years ago now, and then there was a second edition about Britain's The Making of the Nation. Uh, and Colley's book was extremely influential, uh, as historians very often are, uh, in talking to present-day issues, because it was published precisely at the time of this crisis of the Union. And she was trying to, purport to, uh, trying to explain why is it Britishness came into existence. And she said, well, there were two factors. One was religion, Protestantism, and the other was war uh, with France. This is arguable. I'm, I'm not at all convinced about it, but it's, it's, it's an argument. That's what created Britishness in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, leading up to the accession of Queen Victoria in 1837, which I think was a, a cut-off date. This was then taken up by Colley herself and other people to explain the decline of Britishness, because religion has gone away. We're no longer at war with France. So it's kind of winding back the historical clock uh, you take away the props and the nation then disintegrates. This I found quite unconvincing because nations once created take on a life of their own. They're created for instrumental reasons but they don't go away again. France was created by the Catholic religion and war with England and then war with Germany. But it didn't disappear when those had gone away because the nation had been created. So it doesn't really, to my mind, uh, uh, explain this. Other people said, well, there never was Britishness. This very often happens when things go away. Well, it never existed. We never felt British, did we? Well, we did. I'm young enough to remember this, or old enough. Uh, when I was at school, there were big maps on the wall of the world. Most of it was in pink. That was, that was our bits. 
thing, uh, the British Empire. Empire Day, then came Commonwealth Day, a lot of waving of flags. There was a strong sense uh, of Britishness in, in the post-war years. There's a high point, perhaps, of Britishness, but it certainly uh, did uh, exist uh, and seems to have disappeared. Uh, another explanation is to do with the <coughs> social and economic change. People argue, well, the Scots have turned against the Union because uh, their values are diverging from the values of England. Scots are more social democratic, people in England are more neoliberal. This explains this value divergence, explains the divergence in national identities, and there is a divergence in national identities. Scots are feeling increasingly Scottish, less British, and English people are starting to catch up now, starting feeling less English, uh, and, uh, less British and, and more English. This doesn't work either, because the difference in political values between England and Scotland is negligible. Uh, there's, there's hardly any difference. Uh, what did happen, certainly in the 1990s, is that Scots expressed their opposition to neoliberalism through support for nationalism. It was a vehicle for expressing uh, their own values, but English people shared more, more or less the same values, and the data really uh, show that. Uh, other people are saying, well, Scotland and England must be moving apart in their economic and social structures. No, they're converging. Scotland and England are more alike. If we look at the occupational structure, GDP per capita in Scotland is 96% of the average. It's closer to the mean than any other region in the United Kingdom. Uh, the economic and social structures are converging. They're, they're not diverging. That doesn't explain it either. So we can't look for, or we can't find a sociological or economic or a ideological divergence between England uh, and Scotland. But nevertheless, we're seeing this pulling apart uh, politically. We're seeing the evidence for uh, people in Scotland thinking they'll become independent, the ideological crisis of the Union, and we're seeing sharply diverging voting patterns between England and Scotland, in that the Conservative Party has failed to recover in Scotland. Uh, it's been in decline now consistently, almost every election for 50 years, uh, and we're seeing the rise of, of nationalism, so the Scottish National Party has been scoring in elections and opinion polls something like 30% uh, for the last 10 years. So we're seeing a political divergence, we're seeing uh, the creation of, or the recreation of the Scottish uh, nation, we're seeing the politicisation of Scottish national identity, uh, but we can't reduce it to anything else. We can't reduce it to economic, social, or ideological divergence. So how do we uh, explain it? Well, I think we're seeing something that's really much more interesting uh, and uh, of much more relevance in a comparative context, because it does, doesn't just apply to the United Kingdom. We're seeing the rebuilding of political community here in the context of the transformation of the state. So the state is no longer able to, in anywhere in Europe, but certainly in the United Kingdom, to impose an ideological hegemony, uh, a notion of what the national community is, a notion of a national community that includes uh, 
conceptions of citizenship, identity, uh, economic community, social community, uh, and welfare. This is the transformation of the state. Uh, and in this, we're seeing rival projects of nation building. So what we've seen in Scotland over the course of the last 50 years, and particularly over the course of the last 20 years, is the rebuilding of political community. One could say much the same in Quebec, Catalonia, Flanders. This is not the only place. Rebuilding of political community, the rebuilding of uh, the nation in conditions of late modernity. That is not uh, in imitation of the tra traditional nation-state model, which explains the ambivalence about independence, but rebuilding Scotland as a political community. And one reason why Gordon Brown's Britishness uh, agenda failed completely in Scotland, saying, well, Britishness is about fair play, it's about limited multiculturalism, it's about all being part of the same community, it's about democracy and social solidarity, is that those are precisely the values upon which the Scottish nation-building project is predicated. So one has an interesting example here of two civic nationalisms, both of which have eradicated any ethnic element, uh, legitimating themselves on exactly the same grounds and the same basis. So when the British elites say, well, we want to be British because it's more inclusive. People in Scottish nationalists can say, well, we're actually, we're actually more inclusive than you are because we're, we're more European than you are. Uh, we, we actually play this game rather better than you do. So if that's the game, well, don't, don't blame us. Uh, and the British elites putting multiculturalism and multinationalism in the same category also undermines their argument because Scotland too is a place where a multicultural compromise is being struck. It's a little bit different from the one in England. But this is the site of multicultural en encounters. Now, where you have two national projects which are both de-ethnicized and both based upon exactly the same values, the same civic values, you might argue that it makes accommodation easier. But it doesn't. It actually makes it in all sorts of ways more difficult because these two projects are competing on exactly the same normative ground for the same people, for the same reasons. And they're both trying to establish the bounds of political community, but they're framing them differently, because one is at British level and one is at Scottish level. This was described in a very interesting article by Stéphane Dion a few years ago, as uh, the Tocqueville's paradox. Now, Stéphane Dion was a political scientist in Montreal, uh, a successful political scientist who became a much less successful politician. And he's, he's still in, in politics. Uh, but he argued this in the case of Quebec, that the very secularization of Quebec, the less emphasis upon belonging and ancestry and so on, in other words, the very convergence towards a more inclusive civic nationalism, made the clash with Canada even more difficult because they were an identical project. There were two identical projects claiming the same community, claiming the same territory, and claiming the same moral legitimation. Whereas where you have a radical difference in values, or where you have a linguistic difference, you can deal with this with all kinds of uh, accommodation. You can have special language rights, you can make exceptions for different language groups, you can have cultural exceptions. But when you have a broadly based civic nationalism, uh, this is trying to establish the bounds of the community uh, as a whole. One could say very similar things about 
Catalan nationalism as well, which also has framed itself as a broad, inclusive uh, project and also has a European uh, vocation and therefore is a much more powerful competitor to Spanish nationalism than would an ethnically particularist form of nationalism be. And it also becomes much more uh, legitimate. So we're seeing then, I would argue, these uh, two rival projects, which are now uh, institutionalized because in Scotland there is a parliament and an electoral process and a political community, uh, in which neither one nor the other has uh, emerged triumphant. Now, what are the ways in which this might be you know, resolved? This is what one might call the, uh, the, the Scottish question be resolved. I started off this book that I, that I put up just there as a book about independence. Now, I was talking about Scottish independence because uh, the Scottish nationalists had just won the election. They said there would be a referendum on independence. This was in 2007. So I wrote off to Oxford University Press and I said, I've got a proposal for a book. Yes, they gave me a contract and I published the book in 2009. But in the course of, of writing it, the independence debate had so shifted that it was really back on the grounds that I'd been talking about earlier on, namely arguments about shared sovereignty, about new forms of, of, of statehood. Let's start, first of all, though, with the option of independence. Could Scotland become independent? Is that one possible outcome to the dissolution of union that I've been talking about? And the answer is, in some ways, Scotland could very easily become independent. Uh, that, in all sorts of ways, is the easiest option. Uh, is there a legal right for Scotland to become independent? Well, we don't have a constitution. So when I go to Spain, uh, they say, well, tell me about the, uh, in the constitutional implications of Scottish independence. I say, there aren't any. <laughs> Scots want to become independent. Parliament passes a law in five minutes, Scotland is independent. We don't have a constitution. Or if we have a constitution, it is very, very flexible. Even the uh, political objections. People in England accept that Scotland could become independent. The opinion polls suggest that the elites, I've got quotations from Margaret Thatcher and John Major, saying, sure, we don't want them to become independent, but if they want to, yes, there's no problem. We, we don't have any moral objection to Scottish self-determination. Again, that's very different from Spain, Canada, uh, and other places. Yes, they, they, they can go. Uh, if the debate was really joined, people might become a little bit more emotional about it. Uh, but there does seem to be an acceptance amongst elites and masses in England uh, that Scotland could become uh, independent. So there's no legal, no constitutional uh, objection to it. There's really no argument about the borders. There are no internal minorities in Scotland that might want to opt back into the United Kingdom, as there are, say, with the Anglophones in Quebec. The only argument is at sea, which of course is where the oil is, so it's an important uh, argument. But even that is more or less uh, resolved now. So most of the usual questions about Scottish independence don't really uh, uh, arise. Uh, and that's why uh, in the debate that's been going on in Scotland since the nationalists came to power and proposed their referendum, hardly anybody has talked about whether it would be legal or constitutional or not, or whether there is a right to self-determination 
in the Scottish case, those arguments just don't exist. Now that's, that's interesting in a comparative context because that is certainly not the case in Spain and it's certainly not the case in Canada or almost other countries. But the argument in Scotland, however, has hinged more on the consequences of, of independence, uh, notably the political economy of independence. And the project that is put forward by the nationalists at the moment, uh, because they have, since they came to power, issued a series of papers, uh, a green paper, a white paper, two draft bills proposing that Scotland would become uh, independent. <coughs> the questions have hinged upon uh, economic issues and upon exactly what one means by independence. Because, of course, it's not obvious within the European Union and in the modern state just what constitutes an independent state. What do you have to have to be an independent state? You don't have to have your own currency, we know that. <coughs> you don't have to have your own defence policy. You don't have to secure your own borders. None of these are true within the European Union. So what does independence uh, actually mean? And many of the issues have hinged upon uh, the political economy of independence. Could Scotland be viable as an independent state? Well, at one time people argued about that and said, no, Scotland would, would not be viable. You can't be viable as an independent state. You wouldn't survive. Nobody really says that anymore because now that the independence debate is put within the context of the European Union, a lot of the externalities are taken care of. You can be a small state in the European Union. Uh, you have access to uh, a large internal market. Uh, you have guarantees against predatory behaviour by uh, your neighbours, predatory economic behaviour, uh, retaliation, sanctions and so on uh, by your neighbours. You can have open borders, there's free travel. So the economies of scale uh, argument is taken care of by the existence of the European Union and we know that there are states in the European Union that are much smaller than Scotland. The question rather is how do you manage your interdependency as a small state within the European Union? What do small states do? How do small nations survive within the European Union? And there are many different strategies uh, for doing this. And this debate has not really been engaged very adequately uh, in Scotland. <coughs> uh, for a while, Alex Salmond, who became First Minister, said, well, we'd be like the countries of the Ark of Prosperity. So he looks up at Northwest Europe. There are all these very, very wealthy states. We became a small independent state. Well, we'll be just like them. They include Norway, Sweden, yeah, fair enough, Ireland, Iceland. They were all in there. <laughs> uh, somehow we, we, we could be like them uh, and rich uh, and in, in, in independent. Well, of course, that ignored the fact that there are very, very different ways in which these small nations maintain their independence. Uh, the Irish, for a long time, were highly dependent on the British market. They escaped from British economic domination by joining the European communities in the 1970s, delinked their currencies and became independent really independent through Europe. I know nominally they were independent since 1922, they were a republic since 1945, but they only gained control of their own affairs uh, through Europe and being able to detach themselves from British economic uh, domination. <coughs> and uh, they did very well in Europe for a while, and then they just went very stupid 
even more stupid than the British, which is pretty difficult, uh, and, and completely messed, messed things up and almost destroyed uh, the, the, their, econo their own economic independence. Uh, Iceland did a very, very similar thing too. It was doing fine with fish, uh, uh, and then uh, did stupid things with financial services. <coughs> other countries, other small countries, try to maintain independence through uh, inserting themselves into the global trading order uh, uh, through their capacity to adapt very, very rapidly to external shocks. And small countries are quite good at doing this. Uh, uh, even, even Ireland has undertaken a drastic restructuring in the last year, which is much bigger than anything that Britain has complicated and sort of got away with it. I know the government is going to collapse, but the, the state has not collapsed. Uh, the society has not collapsed. So small countries can survive and be independent in Europe if they have flexibility, if they can adapt very rapidly. You can't control your external environment. You've got to adapt to it very, very rapidly. And there are different ways of doing that. Uh, one is to adopt the, the neoliberal strategy, low tax strategy, say, so well, cut taxes, attract mobile investment, minimal regulation of industry, and, and, and investment will, will flow in, will compete to attract footloose investment. This is what the countries of Central and Eastern Europe are doing. Estonia, for example, uh, will have very low taxes, flat rate taxes, minimal welfare provision, uh, and will attract footloose capital. Ireland did this for a while too. A very different model, however, is the, the Nordic model, Scandinavian model, uh, which have very high taxes, uh, elaborate welfare states, uh, and which adapt to changing external conditions by trading up to higher value sectors in the economy, by investing heavily in research and development, uh, and engaging in high value added uh, activities, uh, and by practices of social consultation and social partnership amongst employers, trade unions and governments, enabling them to respond very flexibly to external shocks. This is what happens in Sweden and in uh, Finland and, and, uh, and in Denmark. So small nations can be independent states within Europe. They can survive, but they have to choose which of those strategies they're going to adopt. And in Scotland, unfortunately, the nationalists want a little bit of both, or as I put it, they want Irish levels of taxation, Swedish levels of, of, of welfare. There are these strategic choices to be adopted, and one reason why the nationalist counter-project has not replaced the unionist one is the nationalists have never answered those questions, which are political economy questions. They're not about identity, they're not about self-determination, they're about uh, political economy. Similar questions arise with regard to uh, Europe, uh, the Scottish nationalists, as other stateless nations in Europe, rely very heavily on Europe as an external support system for their projects. They were Eurosceptic at one point until the mid-80s, uh, and then they adopted Europe because they thought, thought that within Europe they could become independent. They're not the only ones to do this. The, uh, Basque nationalists adopted this strategy as long ago as the 1930s. And in the 1980s, when the European, let's, let's just call it the European Union for consistency, uh, when the European Union had 12 members, the Basques used to have a flag with 13 stars.
because it would be the 12 plus the last country. I always used to say, what about us, you know, what about Scotland? You, know, you think it's just going to be 13? You're going to be the only one who's going to get in there? Yes, because within Europe, then they could be independent uh, of Spain. So the Scots nationalists bought this argument in the 1980s. Uh, when British nationalists, of course, are saying we hate Europe because it's eroding our sovereignty, Scottish nationalists are saying we love Europe because it enlarges our sovereignty. That is going to allow us to become uh, independent. But of course, it's an attenuated independence. Uh, and uh, small nations can work very effectively in Europe if they realize that, if they realize you're not completely independent and sovereign as in the old days of the nation state. You're working in an interdependent system, a, a, a network, and you're most effective if you get right to the heart of that network. So Scottish nationalists could achieve their aim of an independent Scotland. Arguably, they'd be most independent inserting themselves deep into the heart of Europe, joining absolutely everything. The alternative is what I call the Danish strategy of trying to be semi-detached. Uh, and that is the predominant view within the Scottish National Party. Well, Europe is a regrettable necessity in some ways. Uh, they claim that they trumpet their European credentials because it makes them morally superior to the folks down in London. And we're better, we're more, we're more outward looking, we're more European, we're better than you are. But uh, if you ask them closely about the strategy, with regard to Europe. They want to pick and choose the bits they want. Uh, we may or may not go into the Euro, and if we don't go in the Euro, we'll have to stick with the pound. So no question of having their own Scottish currency. Well, you know, that's problematic. We won't go into the Schengen area. Anyway, we couldn't if England wasn't in the Schengen area, because otherwise we'd have to have border posts between England and Scotland. And we'll just, we won't have the fisheries policy. Uh, this is the, uh, the Danish strategy, which arguably is, is a bit of an illusion. Denmark claims to be outside the euro. It is, in fact, part of the euro. It is part of the European monetary system. So I have, uh, I, I have here, I, I love demonstrating this to my colleagues in Catalonia and Quebec who are terribly impressed. Uh, I have here a Scottish banknote. Uh, and I managed to change one of these in London. You didn't used to be able to do this for a few a couple of hours ago, I was able to exchange one of those. It is a sterling banknote, but it gives us the wonderful illusion that we have our own money. Similarly, if you go to Denmark, they have a krona, uh, which is a euro, because it's tied to the euro, but it gives them the illusion that they have their own monetary policy. So they would be actually be more influential being part of the euro, because at least they'd be represented in the European Central Bank. So what is the attitude to Europe uh, for a stateless nation? My argument is you can become more independent by being deeply embedded in Europe because then you influence matters. You can have some control over the levers that being a semi-detached nation in which you just have to take policies that are set elsewhere. And some nationalists understand this. I think the Catalan and the Basque and the Flemish nationalists understand that much better than Scottish nationalists. Then there's the broader geopolitical position. Where do you stand? part of the Anglo-American world, part of the Nordic world, part of core Europe. These are geo-economic, geo-strategic regions within Europe and uh, nations 
who are not independent anymore but interdependent need to navigate themselves uh, around all of these. It does seem that in recent years the United Kingdom has been moving out of the European orbit and into a US-dominated transatlantic orbit. Where would Scotland go? Arguably Scotland would belong up there in the Nordic group or maybe the European core. Uh, these are big questions uh, that are not reducible to simple constitutional questions. Uh, and finally, there's an argument about what kind of Europe uh, do we want. We want uh, an economic Europe, purely a market Europe, or we want a more social Europe, a fundamental argument. Uh, and it is likely that opinion in British government, well, not likely, it's a fact now, favours uh, a, a largely economic conception of Europe and it's highly resistant to a stronger social dimension in Europe uh, or to further political union. Whereas Scottish opinion, Scottish elite opinion, to some extent mass opinion as well, is very much more inclined towards a more social conception of Europe uh, and towards a uh, less, is less re resistant to political uh, integration. So this is a factor that perhaps would also seeking to pull apart the United Kingdom, but which the Scottish nationalists have not themselves resolved. So the conclusion, and the final part I'll, I'll come to in, in a moment, which is about the Union, but the conclusion of the analysis then is that, that unionism has, has failed uh, as a convincing I ideology and practice, but Scottish nationalism also failed. And uh, we've got this, if you want to understand what's going on in Scotland at the moment and why the parties are shadow boxing, is that they both lost the argument and the nationalists have finally withdrawn their referendum bill from the parliament because they didn't have a majority, but also because they couldn't really explain the independence project. Uh, and the unionists uh, are now putting through their alternative proposals through the UK and Scottish parliaments simultaneously based upon slightly extending devolution, and they can't understand uh, either. Well, what is the future for the United Kingdom then? Uh, I said it's, it's one of these uh, interesting cases of transformation of sovereignty and transformation of nationality that I've tried to explain uh, a little bit based upon rival conceptions of civic and political community, rival conceptions of the relevant unit for social solidarity and economic management. Uh, gradually the United Kingdom has been transforming itself into uh, a looser kind of political union that doesn't correspond to the traditional nation-state, that isn't a federation either, nor is it a, a confederation. Now, in, in my view, we can come a little bit normative, I, I think this is in many ways enormously positive. Uh, there are people, uh, particularly in London and think tanks in London who get terribly worried about this and sometimes they come up to Scotland and say we're terribly worried, really concerned. We can't define the purpose of the United Kingdom and it's falling apart and we need to put it together and say what, what are you worried about? I can't see and a problem out there. I really don't see what, what your problem is. Sure we're going through this process of constitutional restructuring. We don't know where it's heading but then so what? What's, what's, what's the big deal? Uh, but a certain kind of constitutional thinking says that We've got to nail down the United Kingdom. We've got to define it once uh, and for all. Well, uh, 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 at one time, uh, when, when, when uh, I, I was young, 
uh, we all deplored the ancient British constitution and thought, isn't it terrible? We've got things like the House of Lords and the monarchy and that. Uh, the archaic practices in the House of Commons. Uh, we really want a, a modern constitution. This was the kind of Charter 88 movement and so on. Constitutional reform. Let's modernize it. Now I think that's probably wrong. Because I think nowadays the United Kingdom has achieved a remarkable feat of going from an ancien régime, as Tom Nairn calls it, a pre-modern constitution, to a post-modern constitution without getting stuck in modernity, which is where the rest of Europe is. Uh, and the movement for that was the late 19th century. And we could have done it then, maybe the right way, but we didn't. And this has given us enormous flexibility. So we don't have these agonizing debates they have in Spain or elsewhere, essentializing the constitution uh, and the nation. So you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do the other thing. Well, you can. You can do less, more or less uh, anything you like. We're also singularly blessed with a government coming to power in 1997, and Tony Blair has admitted this, who knew nothing about the issue at all and didn't care. Uh, we're told that you've got to do something for Scotland because really they're very uppity and the 50 MPs there, which is a large part of the majority, okay, we'll do something. And then he's regretted it afterwards, he says in his memoirs, he regretted it. Didn't know what I was doing. In many ways, it was quite useful to have a government that doesn't know what it's doing, because then the system moves forward. You get these incremental changes, tackling the different parts of the United Kingdom separately, not a single bill for everybody, not putting the whole thing together, uh, and uh, uh, an evolution. So, uh, this uh, change which we've seen, devolution, radical asymmetry of the Constitution, creates all kinds of anomalies, most of which people, which people don't really get terribly exercised uh, about, uh, and has converted the United Kingdom into something like a federation, a kind of federation of self-governing nationalities. Now, if one asks people in Scotland where this is going to go, I put up some uh, data here, and we'll go back to them. <coughs> this is the question about, do you want to become independent? Present the Scottish Parliament and Executive is now government in their present form established completely separate state in the United Kingdom. How will you vote? <coughs> it's around about 22 to 30%, as we just saw. <coughs> uh, it, this is uh, a harder question. I agree the Scottish Government should negotiate with the United Kingdom so that Scotland becomes an independent state. That gets uh, higher percentage in the same question, in the same survey. Where is it? Yeah. Uh, the reason is, you're given an option there, keep things in the present form, or completely separate from the United Kingdom, the independent support falls. If you just talk about Scotland becoming an independent state, it goes up. In other words, this is very, very sensitive to the question. And it comes in, uh, in independence, not talking about separate from the United Kingdom. Uh, the S word uh, is, is a real uh, off point. Uh, and this is the uh, actual <coughs> yeah, this is pretty much close to the question that the Scottish government proposes so that Scotland becomes an independent state from uh, the United Kingdom. 
it, it gets that much support. Anyway, I won't go into those. The point there is that it, it depends on the question. Uh, there is support for, uh, you can get support for independence up to 40% or to 50% if you ask a soft question. If you ask a hard question, you can get it down to about 20%. What this reflects is that people do want something like independence, but they don't define it as being an independent state. They want control of ever larger areas of domestic policy. They have no interest in their own defense policy. They have no interest in the seat of the United Nations. They do want to control the taxation system. And if you look at it clearly, uh, closely, and disaggregate the data, then it's fairly clear where people in Scotland would want to go to some kind of confederal arrangement with the rest of the United Kingdom. If one looks at what the, uh, where the debate has been going and what the nationalists have been saying in recent years, similarly, they're moving in the same direction because they start off by saying we want independence, successive versions of their white papers saying, well, we'll keep the pound, we'll maybe keep some of the regulatory authorities, we'll allow the British Army bases to remain in Scotland, not the nuclear ones, but all the other bases in Scotland. We will have joint positions and so on. So they are attenuating sovereignty. They are moving back towards some kind of confederal mixed sovereignty model. So within Scotland, it's, it's fairly clear what the outlines of a settlement would be. Some kind of loose confederal arrangement with the United Kingdom, sharing various uh, things. The problem, however, uh, lies not in Scotland, uh, but uh, in England. Uh, and it is how far would opinion in Whitehall and Westminster in England accept this notion of uh, asymmetrical government when it implies continued Scottish influence in English uh, affairs. This is known as the, the, the West Lothian question. In fact, the Scottish MPs can vote on English matters and English MPs can't vote on Scottish matters. Uh, it is this that really prevents the extension of greater devolution to Scotland and a confederal arrangement. What do you do about power at the centre? Or alternatively, you could convert the United Kingdom into a federation. People sometimes people say this is, this is more logical. Why don't you just go for federalism? People in Scotland would, set, would settle for a, a federal kind of structure. Because people in England don't want a federal structure. <coughs> because in the federal system, you'd have to recognise that the central government is constrained by the constituent units. And so far, uh, people in England have been able to continue imagining that they live in a unitary state. Uh, and the reason that they're so unfazed about Scottish uh, separation is because this would reinforce the unitary state. It'd be even more of a unitary state. And the reason they're not bothered about asymmetrical devolution is that it means they don't have to federalize the United Kingdom and can retain Parliament at Westminster, in which they are the overwhelming majority, and which the Scottish and Welsh people will hardly ever hold the balance of power. So the genius, and this is indeed the genius of unionism in the long term, is that it allows people in England to think they live in a unitary nation-state called England or Britain, interchangeably, because of the same thing, and allows people at the periphery to realize they live in a multinational state. 
and maintaining that cognitive dissonance is what is going to become more and more difficult. <coughs> so if one accepts that there's very little chance that English people will accept the federalization of the United Kingdom or continued Scottish influence when Scotland is becoming more and more self-governing, then the problem of maintaining the United Kingdom is not in Scotland because the Scots know pretty much what they want. It's in England. Hence the conclusion of my book uh, that uh, the independence of Scotland, the secession of Scotland, is not going to occur in the next few years because Scots have got pretty much what they want and they're getting more and more self-government while maintaining the United Kingdom. What is much more likely is the secession of England from a union in which it has to pay the economic and political costs, which it has to recognize increasingly the multinational and quasi-federal nature of the institutions of the United Kingdom and pay attention to what is going on in the periphery when the alternative could be to reconstitute itself as an independent nation state. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much, Michael. I think you've um, shed a lot of light on this enigmatic country that we live in. So thank you very much. Are you pleased to know we now have some, some time for questions? Um, I'm going to take the Chair's prerogative and answer the first question. Um, in, in terms of, of um, actually having political power and how it kind of damages the reputation of, of certain political projects, do you think that the SNP uh, gaining power has caused Scottish nationalists to lose the argument, or do you think it has had much of an effect? Yeah, well, it, it did appear when the nationalists came to power that support for independence was, was falling. And when they came to power, the, the, the Scottish Social Attitudes Survey asked the same question in a very scientific way every year. So that's probably the best time series, but it's only a snapshot once a year. And it seemed to show it was falling. So it was very amusing to say, well, you know, the Scots want either independence or a nationalist government, but not both. <laughs> that's too much. <laughs> Which is typical of stateless nations play uh, both sides don't invest exclusively in one strategy. But then it went up a little bit, and uh, it's probably within the margin of variation. Uh, so probably support for independence has not, has not really been affected very much at all, which, which is a defeat for the nationalists, because they thought that their being in government could ratchet up support and they could get it up to the 50% level. That, that simply hasn't happened. It's, it's, it's not shifted, or it's fallen slightly. That's very interesting. Thanks for your answer. Um, I'll now turn the uh, questions over to the floor, if anyone has any questions. I'll go to uh, Margaret first. I'm wondering to what extent um, the Scottish, I'll just generalise it as such, are idealising uh, a possible uh, a membership in the EU, going from one union to the other, with, with an increasing number in the EU, Countries are already complaining that you know the six-term, a uh, six-month term of, as EU presidency is becoming less and less, you know, an acceptable mechanism, and all the small countries don't really have much power. And I mean, aren't they just better off staying in the union they're in? Well, what 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 is interesting about this argument is is everybody's talking about union. That's that's an interesting thing, uh, because the unionists are talking about the United Kingdom. Uh, the nationalists are talking about the European Union, or they're talking about something they call the social union. So this language of union is, is, is absolutely pervasive. But then we've got to think about how unions work, and this is exactly the sort of question that you've posed. And, and you have those dilemmas. Now, if you look at the behavior of small states in the European Union, they hardly ever exercise their veto power. 
they're almost always in the majority coalition. That's how you work. You get on the side, you make, you make bargains, you make allies. Uh, you don't have to do that if you're France or Germany, but you do do that if you're, if you're a small country. Uh, and, and they can be quite effective. But of course, they're not going to be as effective as big countries. You, 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 you have to accept the essential limitations of, of power. Uh, and uh, the, the strand in nationalism that doesn't realize that still thinks you become independent, you start pulling levers. You're just exchanging one set of independencies for the other. And whether you're better within the United Kingdom or within the European Union, that's, that's a, a, a judgment to be made. You can, you can legitimately disagree. I think the European Union could become a breakpoint in that if there is a continued dominance of Eurosceptical thinking in British government, uh, which, which there seems to be, I know the Conservatives have moderated their Euroscepticism a little bit, but not much, and the Liberal Democrats are going down nowhere. And if, if this is, is happening, uh, and uh, a number of things are about to come up on the agenda to do with uh, fiscal harmonization is one, uh, common security and defense, security or common security area is, is, is another one in which Scottish and English opinion could diverge significantly then that could be a break point uh, with English opinion wanting to start pulling out and Scottish opinion wanting to start going more deeply into Europe that's a see that's, that's that's that could be a break point in the in in the Union at some point we have to decide do we want the United Kingdom or do we want the European Union you can't have both but then going into Europe would require a lot of very, very serious strategic thinking. How you work as a small and rather weak player. Exactly. And, and, and you, 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 there are strategies for doing it. Networking, alliances and so on, coalition forming. That some countries are quite good at. The Irish, in fact, are quite, are quite good at this. They, they, they've learned it very, very quickly. Uh, and others are less good at it. But it's all about interdependence. Excellent. I'll just go to the gentleman at the back there. Um, you talk about British nationalism and Scottish nationalism being fundamentally civic. Do you think that would necessarily be the case with any English nationalism that came through this process and what the implications? Yeah, well, this is, this is a very interesting question. This, this is English nationalism, which has never been articulated uh, in the past because they didn't have to. Because if you're the majority, you don't, you don't have to articulate. There's nothing to articulate it uh, against. But there's been a lot of talk about it recently in which we can discern strands of English nationalism. And one interpretation of Euroscepticism is it's a form of English nationalism. I know it's called British, but you could argue that a lot of that really builds upon Little Englander notions and English nationalist traditions. There was a strand of, of, of strident English nationalism, English Defence League and so on, which is, which is extreme right, near fascist. Uh, that's then being challenged, however, by, by some people on the left who are trying to reclaim English nationalism for progressive forces. So that's, that, 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 it, this is not a mainstream argument. This is an argument out of the fringes. Uh, and there are people, politicians, who in the past have sought a distinct English radical tradition. Tony Benn is one of them. He, he talks about the levelers and, and, and English traditions. Historian E.P. Thompson, very much embedded in, in English traditions. 
So there is material around there, all the raw materials out there for, for, for different English national projects, supposing uh, an English national project were, were, were viable. Uh, and, and, and they are very different. And, and, and one is very Eurosceptic, one is very exclusive, one is overtly racist, but, but others are drawing draw more progressive traditions, and we don't know how that's going to work out. Um, you were talking about how the debate over independence in Scotland has become centered around uh, the political economy. Um, you know, they're not having the, the constitutional debate, there's no contested voters. And then I was thinking about uh, Quebec, where you do have the question of constitutional legality and you know, the question of Anglo Commons in Quebec and um, you know, cultural differences, etc. And yet, um, Opinion poll um, surveys taken after the 95 referendum still show, I'm thinking of um, Andre Lay's work, I think that's the Royale, still show how central um, the economy was in so many people's decisions to vote against um, separation. You know? So I just think it's interesting, and even when you do have these other issues being debated, especially at the political level, how central um, questions of economy and, and Basically, it comes down to what's my standard of living going to be, you know, are in these, in these kinds of questions. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. In, in, in Quebec, in, in the second referendum, the context had been changed by the existence of NAFTA, which was then played up to an extraordinary degree, an exaggerated degree. Well, we're okay because we'll be in NAFTA. NAFTA doesn't do everything that the European Union does, it doesn't provide you with all the externalities, it's just a market arrangement, but it was an essential part. Uh, of the economic assurance that was being given. Uh, and then there was more of a debate, more of a serious debate. I was living in Canada at the time. There was a more of a serious debate uh, about political economy than there was, than there has been in, in Scotland, for sure. Papers and papers written about the economic uh, effects of all of, all of this. Uh, and then for reassurance, they said, well, we'll keep the Canadian dollar. They even used the Canadian dollar coin, the loonie, as the O in the Wii. <laughs> vote for independence and you'll get the Canadian dollar. <laughs> Absolutely extraordinary appropriation of the symbol of, 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 of the other side. All of it was, was about economic reassurance. Absolutely. Uh, and if you look at the uh, opinion polls in Scotland and how the economy works out, uh, I, I, I analysed, I did some secondary analysis of all of this to see whether independence votes independent support was affected by whether Scotland was, you thought Scotland was doing well or badly, or whether you thought independence would be profitable or otherwise. And I discovered at that time 37% of the population thought that Scotland should become independent, and 37% thought Scotland did badly out of the Union. But it wasn't the same 37%. <laughs> there was only a 50% overlap. So something like 60 or 17% thought both that Scotland was economically disadvantaged and wanted independence as a result, which is a very small proportion of the electorate. So these cross-pressure in all kinds of complicated ways in, in people's calculations. And a lot, I think a lot of the literature on nationalism doesn't, doesn't take that into account. It doesn't take into account that these different calculations are being made and at any given time one will become predominant. And certainly in, 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 in Quebec they almost won because they converted it into an argument about identity, basically. So by last, this was, this was Bouchard managed to do it in the last couple of weeks of the campaign, affirming uh, a sense of identity. That got it up to 50%. Uh, 
uh, and the economic issues were to some degree neutralized. <coughs> uh, similarly, in, in, in the, the Scottish debate, looking at the economic arguments and the way they played out, the conclusion I came to was that the, both sides had bombarded the battlefield with so much ammunition they simply cancelled each other out. And so at some point people were just discarding the economic arguments. Or either they weren't paying attention to them or they were saying, well, it's not going to make that much difference. And that seems to be the predominant. But, well, it wouldn't make that much difference because that would still be in Europe anyway and we still have the same firms. And, and, and that in itself would be a victory for the nationalists if they were able to say it didn't, it didn't matter because, as, as you say, that is a real, that's a killer to the argument for independence if you say you're, gonna, you're going to lose that materially from it. So very interesting. Is there any more questions on the phone? I don't know particularly much about the Scottish case, but I've looked a bit at um, Spanish nationalism and Catalan nationalism. And, um, and one thing we find with ethnic and civic distinctions is that normally it's not clear cut what's ethnic and civic. So the, the Catalan civic nationalism has ethnic kind of cultural underpinnings, particularly on the language. I was wondering, in this civic Scottish nationalism, is there any cultural underpinning of Scottishness, or is it an anti-British Englishness? And are there um, kind of grassroots levels of movements for Scottish independence? And I don't just mean support for or against independence, but actual groups that say we want greater control and separation from, from Britain, that would kind of link this elite project that you've described with a more popular yeah, yeah. This is this, this really gets us into the detail that are really quite important about the sociological basis of nationalism and support base for nationalism. And this ethnic civic distinction is a very broad brush kind of categorization that falls apart as soon as you try and apply it in individual cases. But it describes a direction of travel and a conscious strategy on the part of the Scottish nationalists to, to adopt this language of inclusiveness. And similarly with, with the Catalan nationalists, adopt that as a strategic mechanism by saying we're positioning ourselves and we're legitimized because we're inclusive. So it's, 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 it's a normative, it's, it's a strategy, it's not a characterization of nationalist movements, it's not a taxonomy, it shouldn't be treated as such. But if one goes to different levels and different categories of the population, one gets different understandings of the nation. And this is something I look at my book uh, uh, as well. And we can't say Scots think this or that, because Scotland is a kind of complex society, a fragmented society, and a stratified society. So which social groups? So I trace, well, what happened to the middle classes? What happened to the working class? What happened to the, these different social classes? How did they buy into the union? Uh, and, and how are their conceptions of the union? And how has social change uh, affected the acceptance of, of Scottishness uh, as an identity category? And the answer is, is it has, because it's a very easy category to adopt, particularly in the face of weakening class attachments uh, and weakening uh, attachments within Scotland. There was a very uh, important ethnic divide in Scotland until recently, which is between the Irish Catholics and the Scottish Protestants, which has more or less disappeared in the last generation. And they bought into this notion of Scottishness, which is a new notion of Scottishness. It's a reinvented notion of what Scottishness is because nations are always reinventing themselves and it's been constructed in such a way that it's not terribly difficult for most people to buy into, even in Scotland. 
uh, to, to, to a high degree uh, can, can buy into it. Uh, now, in, in Catalonia, there's a, an objective to do the same kind of thing, but the language is in one sense an obstacle because you have to learn it. On the other hand, once you've learnt it, you're in, pretty much. In Quebec, even learning the language is not, is not enough. It's, 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 it's deeper. So, so the, 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 there are thresholds to overcome to be accepted as part of this reconstituted community. And in, in Scotland, it's, it's, it's rather easy compared with, with other cases. Uh, and then if you look at dimensions uh, of identity, uh, there's a very good work being done at Edinburgh University, which has done a lot of survey work and a lot of ethnographic work. Uh, and one question they ask in surveys is, what do you have to do to be Scottish? And who can become Scottish? And all sorts of difficult questions, like you know, a white English person, a black English person, somebody from Pakistan, or who, who, who can become Scottish? It's really interesting because people construct these categories of inclusion in all kinds of, of, of complicated ways. Uh, uh, and for example, um, most people think that being born in Scotland is important. Now that's interesting because in one sense that's an ascriptive category, you can't change it. On the other hand, it's nothing to do with ancestry. Uh, but then only about half the people will think that's uh, important. Uh, and another large group of people think, well, living in Scotland is enough, or having ancestry is enough. Whereas you've got all these criteria, and David McCrory said, well, when you put all these things together, there are different types, different ways of being Scottish. You can make this claim on various different grounds. Uh, there's no one core thing that is common to all of them. They all add up to different ways of being Scottish. And I guess being British is, is, is very, very similar. Britishness is constructed differently and you can be British in different ways. And that's a rather successful way of nation building because everyone can join it, not as an undifferentiated community in the French style, but, but as a way of, of belonging. Now as for grassroots support, yes, generally speaking, Scottish nationalism is something that's being pushed from the, very much from the bottom rather than by elites. And I would contrast this, say, with Flemish nationalism, which is constructed by elites, in which the elites are well ahead of public opinion, much more nationalist than public opinion uh, in, in Flanders. And the elites then construct these institutions that have this instability and then leads to more and more assertion uh, of Flanders. So the elites are very consciously creating uh, Flanders. Uh, in Catalonia, it's somewhere in between, because, yes, there are lots of materials for a Catalan identity, but elites have been very conscious that they're building this nation. Uh, and what always strikes me in Scotland is, is how remiss the nationalist elite are in building the nation. And I keep on asking them this. I say, why, 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 why are you not doing this? Well, the nation exists. You know, we take it for granted. Well, of course you take it for granted, because nobody contests the Scottish nation. Nobody denies that Scotland is a nation. So you don't have to... But, but it's not being constructed as a political community by elites in the way that you're seeing in Catalonia. And that's one reason why they're losing the argument. And that's one reason why they've not mobilized more support uh, behind their project, because they just kind of take the nation for, uh, for granted. Mm -hmm. And they've not engaged in building within civil society. I know they, there's a, they have various civic organizations. There's a trade unionist for independence, Asians for independence, and, and, and so on. Uh, but, but, but these are not really nation-building 
mechanisms such as you would find in Catalonia where all these civil society organizations, rambling clubs and sporting clubs, are all committed to this notion of, of, of building the nation. I think it's quite interesting what you're saying. I think one of the things SNP is trying to do is get rid of, for example, people from other political parties, primarily Labour, who were in Civic Scotland, who were council leaders, who were often very well placed in organisations. And I think the SNP has been trying very hard not to have a cull, but to make it much more difficult for party hacks, as it were, to simply go straight into these positions. I think that's been one of the big pushes over the last three, four years. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, certainly in, in, in municipal government, because of the change in the electoral system, which was put through because the Liberal Democrats insisted on it. Yeah, in fact, Scotland was, was, was managed, this is all part of the historical background, for a long time by this system of administrative devolution, whereby there were intermediaries uh, in Scotland who managed Scotland on behalf of, of British government and presented a Scottish face to uh, uh, what is essentially British policy because the policies were pretty much <coughs> the same. Uh, and this meant that even under conservative governments, you got a conservative Secretary of State who then defended, posed the defender of Scotland within Scotland and then went to London to try and lobby for goodies and bring them back. Scotland again. In many ways, this was demobilizing because it was the politics of patronage and clientelism, uh, and not a politics of, of, of action. And the other side of it was the, the, the Labour Party, which ran a lot of domestic Scotland, local government level, since the 1960s, through political machines, which again was politics of patronage and, <coughs> and, and distribution rather than politics of mass mobilization. So, in many ways, Scotland was a politically demobilized society, surprisingly so. Uh, uh, there, 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 was a, there, were, there were movements outside the political parties, CND and environmental movements and so on, but the political class itself uh, was surprisingly uh, inert until the rise of the generation of Gordon Brown and Robin Cook. There were hardly any cabinet ministers came from Scotland. Hardly any politicians of, of, of the first rank. Uh, and that was no doubt part of the reason for, for, for devolution, part of the groundswell for devolution was the dissatisfaction with this politics of management and the bureaucratic style, of managerialist style of government with a little bit of labour patronage at, 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 the, at the local level. That's certainly part of the political uh, discontent which explains the rise of, of the SNP and of, and of other parties indeed, because it's not just, just the SNP. Uh, and they then devolution, the setting of the Scottish Parliament breaks the hegemony of Labour and Conservative, and then the change in local government breaks the grip of the Labour Party. So we are seeing, we are seeing some shifts uh, in Scottish politics, and, and every new political movement now that emerges in Scotland, or social movement, is, is Scottish. You no longer have uh, British movements starting up in Scotland. Uh, so everything now is framed by a Scottish debate, whether the new environmental group or social group, whatever it is, always, it's always a Scottish one. So I think we're seeing a strengthening then of Scottish civil society and the Scottish dimensions uh, of, of civil society uh, <coughs> around, let's say, more national themes, if not nationalist. So the shared 
the strengthening of the notion of Scotland as the relevant political community, which doesn't necessarily mean you're a nationalist, but it means that you're accepting, which, it would, which would become like Catalonia or Quebec, where there's this strong sense of we're all part of the same national community, we'll have our fights here, and then we'll go and, and, and deal with the central government. <coughs> but but uh, in, in Scotland, it's not nearly as, as, as developed as it is in other places. Scottish politics is, 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 is developing, it's growing. Devolution's only been around for 10 years. Things have only started to, to, to shift. Excellent, thanks. Uh, any more questions on the floor? No? Okay, then. well, at this point, um, I suppose I draw tonight for close. I just want to thank you again, Professor Keating, for a very, very uh, enlightening talk and questions and answer sessions. Um, before everybody goes, um, I'd like to say that we're going to go to the White Horse Pub now for drinks. Uh, if you'd like to come along so we can continue discussion uh, in more of a kind of informal setting. Um, our next seminar is on the 9th of March, and it's Ethnic Minorities in Europe, Integration of the French Republic by Dr. Alec Hargreaves um, from the University of Florida. So please come look to that if you can. And thanks again, Michael.